Are Christians in the Middle East enjoying more freedom or facing more significant threats? Journalist Todd Nettleton is just back from a fact-finding trip to the Middle East. He shares real stories of hope and hurt in just a few minutes. Welcome to The Land and the Book with Middle East expert Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Full program today, Charlie, beginning with a look at current events, and then uh, we've got this conversation with Todd Nettleton about religious freedom trends in the Middle East. Questions and answers, always welcome, but I'm really intrigued with your devotional this week. Your title and, and where are we going? Well, it's on pomegranates because we're looking at the seven species in the land, uh, but we're going to hike out to Pomegranate Peak, which I have a feeling most people aren't aware of. I'm not aware of Pomegranate Peak either, but I'll look forward to that. Let's turn our focus now toward current events, stories we're seeing unfolding right now in the Middle East. This week, Amnesty International released a report labeling Israel an apartheid state, calling on the UN and other nations to end support for Israel, including the sale or transfer of weapons to them, the banning of all products from Israeli settlements, and the investigation of Israeli officials for crimes against humanity. How accurate are these charges, Charlie? You know, John, the sheer size of this report is daunting. Uh, It's 280 pages in length, and those charges, if they're true, are serious, but in reality, they're distorted. They give a, uh, an impression without clear historical context. Uh, we'd get bogged down here. We'd spend the whole hour uh, just going through point by point. But let me just give a few examples to show why I have real problems with this report. Uh, it states, for example, that before Israel was established, Palestinians owned 90% of the privately owned land. They then go on to say Jews, many of whom emigrated from Europe, only owned 6.5% of the land. Now, the point they're trying to make there is that Israel brought in Jews from Europe to take over Arab land, but they very carefully manipulated the numbers. It sounds like they're saying the Palestinians owned 90% of the land before Israel took over, but that's not correct. They actually owned 90% of the privately owned land. Now, what they're not telling readers is that 70% of the entire land wasn't privately owned. It was state-owned, first by the Ottomans and then by the British Mandate and then by the nation of Israel. Of the remaining 30% of privately owned land, the reality is that 8.6% was owned by the Jews, just over 3% was privately owned by Arabs who became Israeli citizens, and about 17% was owned by Arabs who fled the conflict. Uh, That reality is far less than the 90% the report would have you believe. Here's another example. They blame Israel in 1948 for the mass expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and the destruction of hundreds of Palestinian villages in what amounted to ethnic cleansing. Now, that's a serious charge. They fail to note that the Jordanians ethnically cleansed the Jewish population from the old city of Jerusalem at that same time, where they had been the majority since the 1800s, and they fail to report the ethnic cleansing and massacre of Jews that took place in places like Hebron and Kfar Etzion. Now, were villages destroyed? Yes, on both sides. But only Israel gets blamed in the report. Now, after the extermination of 6 million Jews during World War II, Israel took seriously the reality that their only place of refuge was to return to their historic homeland. And the battle was brutal. There were atrocities on both sides. Hundreds of thousands of Arabs were dispossessed from their homes, but so were hundreds of thousands of Jews living in the surrounding Arab countries who were forced out of their homes. Without that context, the report paints a false picture of Israel being the guilty party, Now, remember, all of this happened just three years after the end of World War II, which uh, in that war, by the way, between 11 and 20 million people worldwide were displaced. Now, one final illustration, John. 
Uh, They referenced the Arab-Israeli War in 1967, and they said that led to Israeli military occupation of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. But they failed to mention that the war was started by Egypt, Syria, and Jordan with the intent of destroying the state of Israel, or that a few months after the war, when Israel offered to return the land in exchange for peace, that offer was met by the famous three no's at Khartoum, no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with Israel. Like I said before, we could spend the entire program looking at all the distortions, omissions, and half-truths in that report. And all I can say, though, is it's anything but accurate. Well, if the report is so distorted, won't that blunt its impact? Uh, I mean, how concerned does Israel need to be? Or are we in the West uh, so gullible as to believe it and then maybe take wrong action? You know, sadly, I think the report's going to have far more impact than it deserves for several reasons. You know, first, it does parrot the views of many countries in the UN, which continually vote to blame Israel for nearly everything. Uh, The report, for example, blames Israel for the war with Hamas last May, while barely mentioning the fact that Israel was responding to unprovoked rocket attacks and that Israel did more to avoid civilian casualties than virtually any other nation on earth would, and that most of the structures Israel hit were targeted because Hamas had placed attack tunnels and military targets in and under them. A second problem with the report, though, is that it'll put pressure on countries like England and France and Germany to halt the sale of weapons to Israel. It could even put pressure on our government, though hopefully that pressure won't be effective. The report could also harm Israel economically by giving legitimacy to the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement and it'll likely result in more resolutions against Israel at the UN. Now, Israel will do everything it can to have the report exposed and discredited, but the report's a reminder that anti-Semitism is still alive and well in the world. Now, as we know, God has a plan for Israel. They're the only country in the world whose title to their land was conveyed to them directly by God. We also know that as the end times get closer, the world will turn against Israel. But that means we as believers, while we can, need to stand up for Israel's right to exist as a nation. They're not perfect. Neither is our country. But they do have a right to live in their land in security. And we need to make sure our leaders on the local, state, and national level affirm that right. Well, that's a good word. Thank you, Charlie. We're looking at current events from the Middle East here on The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Gager. The other battle still being fought within Israel is the battle against COVID, of course. Is Israel winning or losing that fight? And what's the latest update on this real struggle against the pandemic, Charlie? Uh, You know, their numbers just defy simplistic answers. Uh, To date, just under 3 million Israelis have had COVID. That's a third of the population. Uh, Right now, there are over 400,000 active cases. In fact, to put all the numbers in perspective, Israel had more people test positive for COVID this last January than they did all of last year combined. Hmm. Now, those aren't so good numbers, but on the positive side, the R rate, the rate of reproduction of infection, has again dropped below one, which signals a decline in the number of people being infected. It suggests the total number of cases is stabilized and should begin dropping in the next week. And they believe the decline could actually be quite dramatic. The hospitals were stretched to capacity, but most haven't had to postpone or cancel other essential services. Uh, Their coronavirus czar held a press conference this last week and said Israel will now try to strike a balance between protecting the vulnerable while trying not to impact the lives of everyone else. Uh, They're trying to determine what life ought to look like following this Omicron wave of COVID. And again, just this week, the coronavirus cabinet voted to limit the application of the so-called Green Pass that 
uh, regulated people where they could go, and they're going to now just have it limit high-risk events like weddings and clubs and large parties. Now, they're still requiring a COVID test for people flying in, but there's even been reports that that might change in the coming months. So thankfully, Israel is looking for ways to responsibly loosen regulations as they finally begin to win the current battle against the Omicron wave of COVID. Well, the PLO's decision-making body is scheduled to convene this month. What impact could that meeting have on the future of the leadership within the Palestinian Authority? Yeah, the PLO Central Council is indeed scheduled to convene actually this Sunday in Ramallah. The Palestinian leadership structure is really opaque, so bear with me here. The Palestinian National Council is their official parliament in exile. The Palestinian Central Council, the one that's meeting this coming week, is a smaller intermediary body between the National Council and their executive committee, which is the highest executive body. Now, this meeting coming up comes at a time of tension between PLO President Abbas and his Fatah party and other PLO factions, including the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. The meeting was originally postponed over differences in who should fill vacant positions in the executive committee. The last time the Central Committee met was back in 2018. Now, Abbas is 86 years old. He's in the 17th year of his four-year term as president, and he's hoping to tighten his grip on Palestinian leadership by having the Central Committee affirm the appointment of two loyalists to the executive committee. One of them, 62-year-old Hussein al-Sheikh, appears to be the heir apparent to take over the civil and political affairs of the Palestinians once Abbas has left the scene. The other appointee, Majid Faraj, could become responsible for Palestinian security, Both apparently are trusted by Abbas and have a reasonable working relationship with Israel and the U.S. Now, this isn't sitting well with others who want to replace Abbas. So it's going to be interesting to see how the internal politics play out this coming week and then in the following months. But it looks like a sign that leadership change might be coming, however slowly, to the Palestinian Authority. And that's a look at current events in the Middle East. If you've never visited our website, we welcome you to do that. It's thelandandthebook.org. There you can find information about every week's program, our guests, bios, links, and a whole lot more, including information about books that Charlie Dyer has written, so much more. Up next, a conversation with Todd Nettleton, religious trends in the Middle East, here on The Land and the Book. places on this troubled globe have more trouble with persecution than the Middle East. As we move further into the new year, are there any signs of relief? Or is it actually intensifying? What countries in the Middle East are seeing the most persecution? And how can Christians make a difference? Or can we? Great questions, and we'll try to take a look at all of them coming up on this second segment of the broadcast. You're listening to The Land and the Book, and I'm John Geiger, inviting you to pause for just a moment with me and think about creative ideas for loving our Muslim neighbors and friends and co-workers for Christ. So there it is, the dinner date you've been praying about. It's on the calendar. It's there with your Muslim friends, and you're looking forward to having them over at your house, and you're thinking through menu items. Can you offer pork when you're inviting a Muslim who's a little bit more liberal? Is that acceptable for dinner? Stefano Fair with Call of Hope. What do you say? 
what should be on that menu? Well, you see, that's a tricky question because maybe the other day you saw your Muslim friend taking a breakfast sausage and you're mm. pretty sure that it was pork <laughs> and he didn't care. So maybe now you think, okay, then it's okay to come up here with the pork chop. I would say don't do that. Mm. They, they might not care as long as nobody recognizes yeah. it. But when they come and you give them pork, in most of the cases, they would say, oh, no, I'm not taking that as a Muslim. You know. Also, maybe in regular life, they would really not care about it. And many don't. Let's flip the side of the discussion to uh, what might be good on the menu. Two or three main courses you'd suggest would be what? I don't know what you have at home. Give them what you like. Chicken? Not, not chicken, beef? sure. Chicken. Yes, beef Spaghetti? is also everything. Everything you like. <laughs> but maybe not pork. I mean, okay. don't come with the pork roast. But everything you like, give it to them, and they will understand you do something special for them. A rather tasty conversation there, served <laughs> up by Stefano Fair with Call of Hope here on The Land and the Book. Todd Nettleton is the Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for The Voice of the Martyrs USA. He's also the host of the Voice of the Martyrs radio program. Todd serves as a voice for persecuted Christians, inspiring American Christians with the faithfulness of Christ's followers in 70-plus nations where they face persecution for wearing his name. During more than 20 years serving at Voice of the Martyrs, Todd has traveled the world, and he's conducted face-to-face interviews with hundreds hundreds of Christians who've endured persecution in more than 30 different nations. He's been interviewed more than 3,000 times by media outlets, including CNN, the Associated Press, Los Angeles Times, the BBC, Newsweek, and The Voice of America. Todd is also the author of the Moody Publishers book, When Faith is Forbidden. Nice to have you back on the land and the book, Todd. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. Well, you are just back from yet another trip to visit persecuted believers. What stands out about this particular adventure? Well, there was a couple things. Uh, it was great to be traveling again after after several years of, of sort of COVID delays, and uh, it certainly is more difficult to travel now. There's more hoops to jump through. Uh, But the other highlight for this trip was to be able to take my wife along. Uh, This is something that uh, she loves to do. It was her first time in the Middle East, her first time in uh, some of the countries where we were. And so it was great to get to experience it together and have her see the believers that that I have served for all these years and have her kind of have that experience of meeting them face to face. So let's talk further about persecution in the Middle East. Would you say the situation is stabilizing, worsening, or improving? You know, it depends which country you want to talk about specifically. Uh, I I think the situation in Iran seems to be getting worse. Uh, There is definite persecution. The new president there was part of the judiciary. He was part of rewriting the law about religious minorities, including Christians. And so it seems like things there are getting worse. There are some other countries where uh, things seem a little more stable or or maybe even improving. Uh, But oftentimes, even in the countries where maybe the government is less focused on persecuting Christians, the family members are more focused on it. And so persecution in those situations often starts not with a policeman or a court case or a judge or the government. It starts with your dad or your big brother who says, wait a minute, 
we're a Muslim family. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and be a part of our family. And we actually met some people on this trip who have gone through that family rejection and family persecution. Well, it's important that we raise this issue because so often when we talk about persecution, uh, we think of it in terms of government policies and governments that are hostile toward Christianity. But as you say, it often begins, ironically, in families. Yeah, it does. And one of the young men we met on this trip, actually, he's the same age as our oldest son. So for us, uh, sitting there talking to him, it was very easy for us to connect. It was very easy for us, for our hearts to kind of join with his his family has rejected him to the point that they literally tried to kill him. Mm. Uh, one of his family members hit him over the head with an iron with the intent of killing him. It, it split his head open. He bled a lot, uh, but he didn't die. They didn't succeed in that. Uh, he said now they have kind of given up on the idea of physically killing him, but they act as if he was dead. He said, if I walk into a room and my family members are there, they will not acknowledge me. They will not speak to me. They act as if I am not even present with them, as if I am I'm dead. Uh, and, you know, hearing that heartache from him and that loss of those family relationships, which in that part of the world is a huge thing, that the family, the connections, the tribe, that is a huge part of their lives. And so losing that is a very high cost. And I asked him at the end of our conversation, I said, you know, have you ever had second thoughts? You've lost your entire family. You've lost your future really because of this. Have you ever had second thoughts? And he just kind of looked at me and was like, how could I go back to the lie now that I've experienced the truth? Of course I haven't had second thoughts. I, I have found the truth. I have found Jesus. Why would I ever go back to that old way of living? And I thought, what a testimony to the power of Christ and to the power of transformation that Christ brings in our lives for someone who has lost so much to say, no, I've, I've never had second thoughts. I would never go back to the old way. It's an honor to be joined today by Todd Nettleton. He's the Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for the Voice of the Martyrs USA, also the host of the Voice of the Martyrs radio program. Today on The Land and the Book, we're looking at persecution in the Middle East. Well, you know, being whacked on the head with a, with a heavy iron, not a very nice thing to have happen to anybody. But is that typical? I mean, when we use the word persecution, what does it look like? in the context of the Middle East. Sometimes it's a tire iron, apparently. Sometimes it's a shunning by your family. Uh, what other facets of, of persecution come to mind? I mean, you've talked to these people. You know, it, it really depends on what country you're in, and it depends on, you know, particularly we met some folks from Iran who were able to meet with us and talk about their situation. Uh, in Iran, it is very much the government that is persecuting Christians. Uh, if you are found to be an apostate, uh, you are likely to face some form of harassment and prosecution at the hands of the government. If you are found to be a, a witness leading other people to become apostates, then you are really almost considered an enemy of the state, and you can be locked in prison, you can be beaten, you could even be killed, ultimately, for leading people to Christ in Iran. And so that's a place where it is the government that is persecuting. Now, the interesting thing about Iran is the, the government says 
we are Islam. We're doing everything according to Islamic principles. The people of Iran really are unhappy with their government. And, and so because of that, they're unhappy with Islam. And so typically in Iran, when someone comes to Christ, they don't face persecution from their family members. The, the family may say, man, that's great. If you found something that works for you, boy, that's great, because we all know Islam doesn't work. Just look at the state of our country. If you switch gears and go across, say, to Jordan, it is typically not government persecution. It's typically family persecution or tribal persecution. Uh, and so it very much depends on where you're at or what your surroundings are as to what kind of persecution you'll face and, and how high the price will be for following Jesus Christ. Todd Nettleton is just back from a trip to the Middle East, and I understand you met with some Iraqi refugees. Uh, no doubt some stories uh, touched your heart. What can you share? This was really a sobering part of our trip. We we met with Iraqi Christian refugees, and if you know, if we think back five or six years when ISIS was attacking the city of Mosul, when ISIS was attacking some of the Christian villages around Mosul, thousands of Christians fled their homes. They fled to Turkey. They fled to Lebanon. They fled to Jordan. They fled to the surrounding countries, and. At the time, it got a lot of attention. It got a lot of attention from the media. It got a lot of attention from the Christian world. Many of us prayed for those Christians. Some of us sent Bibles. We sent action packs. We sent other forms of help to those Christians. That was five and six years ago. We met some of those Christians who are have been essentially in a holding pattern for that whole five or six years, because when they got to Turkey or Lebanon or Jordan, they don't have any legal status in their host country. They, they are a refugee. They're registered with the United Nations. They're waiting for a, a foreign country to welcome them for resettlement. Maybe it's Canada, maybe it's the U.S., maybe it's Australia. But in the meantime, they don't have any legal status. They can't get a job. Many times their kids can't go to school. And we met these believers who have experienced that now for more than five years. So imagine, you know, if if you could not work, what do you do? I, I literally asked one of the men, I said, what do you do every day? How, how have you spent your time the last five years? And he said, well, I get up in the morning and I have breakfast. Then I go down to the park, and there's a group of men that hang out together down there. Then I come home, and I have lunch. I usually take a nap, and then I go back to the park, and I hang out with the men. And then I come home, and I have dinner, and I go to bed, and then I get up the next morning, and I do the same thing again the next day. And I just thought, boy, you know, that sounds great for a day or maybe two days, but this is five years. This is six years. You know, how do you keep your sense of self? How do you keep your sense of, of desire going in that situation? And I honestly, I kind of felt a little bit guilty, like, like we have sort of forgotten the suffering of these Iraqi Christians that we talked so much about five years ago, uh, but they are still suffering that effects of persecution from ISIS even now five and six years down the road. Yeah, so having survived physically, uh, they are in a strange sort of uh, imprisonment lifestyle-wise, it seems like, right? I like the word imprisonment because it really is that. And we also asked about, you know, is is there a black market? You know, are there jobs that you can get, but it's sort of underground, sort of on the black market? And they said, well, yes, there are. But if you get caught, 
you go to the back of the refugee line. You go to the back of the line to get resettled into another country. So they don't want to do that. They don't want to break the rules and then be forced to stay in this situation longer. So I like your word imprisonment because it really is a form of imprisonment, even though you know they can walk out the door of their house at any time. They really are in a form of prison. Todd, a moment that made you want to cry on that trip. Whose eyes did you lock with? What story did you hear that really uh, that really gripped your heart? You know, I'll never forget uh, the the lady that we met, who for more than a decade has been a follower of Christ. Her husband is still a Muslim, and her husband has basically been abusing her for the entirety of her Christian faith. More than a decade, he has beat her, he has screamed at her, he has abused her, and. You know, as she shared the story, and she wept at parts of her story, and we we wept right along with her. You know, one of the questions we asked was, "Well, why don't you leave? Why, you know, if, if everything is so miserable, if he is so horrible to you, why don't you leave and go someplace else?" And she said, "I have daughters." And I will not allow them to be treated the way I am being treated. I will not allow them to be married off to a Muslim man who will treat them the way I am being treated. I have to stay to protect my daughters. Uh, And like I say, this is now more than a decade that she has experienced that suffering and is staying in harm's way to protect her daughters from what she's experiencing. And that was a very hard conversation. It was hard to walk away from that and say, okay, what what do we do? What could we do? How can we help other than we can pray for our sister in Christ? One way we can learn to pray more effectively is that through a set of tools that you guys have offered at Voice of the Martyrs. Go to persecution.com. Uh, There's an app you can download. I use it called Pray Today, a different country featured every day with very specific prayer requests. You guys also have a newsletter, and of course, there's the radio program, Todd, that you do. But let that journey start at persecution.com, a link at our website. Todd, thank you for being our eyes, our heart, our hands in the Middle East and sharing these stories with us today on The Land and the Book. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, Charlie Dyer returns to the studio with a great set of Bible questions, and I think you'll be inspired as you listen for more on The Land and the Book. If you're new to The Land and the Book, this is segment three, where we open our Bibles, open our hearts, and and tackle some of the tough questions that have come in via email to us. Maybe you've got a question. You should know that it's welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. We've got a big uh, pile of those questions we want to get to. We'll start with Mike's. He takes us to Ephesians 3, 10, and 11, where it says God's purpose was to use the church to display his wisdom to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and that this was his eternal plan. What do you believe this verse means, Charlie? Well, you know, we don't have enough details in the Bible to give a full answer, but I think we have some good hints. Uh, We do know from uh, Genesis and uh, from Job 38 that uh, God talks about the angels who are around at the time of creation. Uh, We know that the fall of Satan probably occurred either before the initial creation on the earth or shortly after because the serpent appears in the Garden of Eden very early, tempting Eve. So it, it suggests Satan's fall preceded God's creation of Adam and Eve and placing them in the garden. What it suggests to me, though, is the conflict between God and Satan, along with the angels who followed Satan, could lie behind much of what's been taking place throughout history. God's entire plan of redemption benefits us. 
but it also might be intended as an object lesson to all these angelic forces, good and evil. Satan and his followers didn't have an opportunity to repent following their choice to rebel, but we've been given that choice. This might also help explain passages like 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says just in passing, don't you know that we'll judge angels? There's so much happening in the spiritual realm that's beyond our normal field of vision. Uh, We have just these and a few other passages that suggest there's more going on than meets the eye, and apparently God's plan for his creation extends beyond the physical creation described in Genesis 1. Now, we don't know as much as we'd like about this larger plan of God, but it does involve his plan for both angels and demons. Paul comments a few places, particularly in John, talk about someone speaking in Aramaic. Is there a big difference between Aramaic and Hebrew? Uh, The best illustration I can give to explain that difference would be a comparison between, say, English and French, or or maybe even more likely, uh, Spanish and French. Uh, Those two languages share the same alphabet. They have the similar grammar. They use many of the same words or words that come from the same root, but they're still separate languages. And uh, that's, in essence, how Hebrew and Aramaic are. Here's an interesting question. Uh, This listener wants to know if the beast mentioned in Revelation 13 could be a minotaur. The golden calf rises again, so to speak. Satan loves to repeat history. Your thoughts, Charlie? Well, I I think the reference to the beast in Revelation 13, you know, comes from Daniel chapter 7, and I take it as the leader of what will be a revived Roman Empire. And the actual description in Revelation 13 really doesn't at all match the description of a minotaur. Uh, The minotaur had the body of a man and the head of a bull. Well, the beast in Revelation 13 has seven heads and ten horns and is said to look like a leopard with feet like a bear and the mouth of a lion. So there's really no uh, physical description that sounds similar there to me at all. Dean says, uh, I know that every page of God's Word points to Christ, but I'd like to give our small group a foundation of some of the more prominent chapters in the Old Testament that point to Christ. Can you recommend some chapters in the Old Testament that you think are key Messianic chapters? Yeah, and I'll say here is grab your pencil and piece of paper because I'm going to give a bunch of them. Passages that relate to the first coming of Christ. Well, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, uh, the birth in Bethlehem. Uh, Zechariah chapters 9 to 11 talk about his arrival in Jerusalem all the way up to his death. Uh, Psalm 22 and Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. Passages that relate to the second coming of Jesus and to the kingdom that's going to follow that haven't been fulfilled. Uh, In that case, I'd go to Isaiah 60 to 66, uh, Zechariah 12 to 14, Ezekiel 40 to 48, uh, Daniel 9, 27, uh, and also Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, uh, and Joel chapters 2 and 3, and Amos chapter 9, and and the end of Malachi, Malachi chapters 3 and 4. Now, I hope that list is helpful, but let me give you another thing. There's a volume called The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, edited by Michael Rodelnik. I think if you get that, you could also find that to be an incredibly helpful resource. And if you'd like to uh, get these verses right now, why don't you check out our podcast? You can play this uh, program in its entirety again at thelandandthebook.org. Go ahead and jot those down as you listen again. All right, this question from Jonas. He says, in Job 9, verse 9, it says, Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? What are the chambers of the south? Many say this is a reference to the stars in the southern hemisphere, but that seems somewhat anachronistic, assuming it is something that would have been known at the time of Job. Now, I can live with the thought that we really don't know, but 
what is the basis for the conclusion that this type of knowledge would have been evident at the time of the writing of Job? I'm just wondering. Yeah, I've taken the chambers of the South there in that passage to refer to the constellations normally associated with the Southern Hemisphere, you know, like the Southern Cross. However, I don't see that as anachronistic. Those Southern constellations are actually visible from the Northern Hemisphere at certain times of the year, as long as the viewer is below 26 degrees North latitude. Now, that's roughly on a line from Medina to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Now, since Job and his friends are from somewhere in the Northern Arabian Peninsula, I don't have a problem with them knowing about this phenomenon, either from their own observation, you know, they may have traveled just a little bit further south on the Arabian Peninsula, or from interaction with travelers who observed those southern constellations on their journeys in that Arabian Peninsula, and then who had contact with Job. So that, to me, does seem possible, and I do think they're the constellations that we normally think of with the southern hemisphere. There's an interesting question from Pam, who listens to us on Moody Radio Chicago. She says, as I've been studying Genesis 37 through 50, I'm wondering if Benjamin was born at the time Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites. Jacob's rebuke in 37 verse 10 states, shall I and your mother? And we know Rachel died after giving birth to Benjamin. Was it news to Joseph when the brothers came to buy grain that there was another brother? A great way to know if his brothers are telling the truth is to bring Benjamin. Another puzzling verse is in chapter 46 verse 21 as Benjamin has 10 children when they come to live in Egypt. By their names, it sounds like he may have had a couple of sets of twins. Could that much time have elapsed for Benjamin to be born and then have 10 kids, multiple wives? Also, did the events in Genesis 34 happen after Joseph was sold? Because how could Jacob have sent him to check on his brothers in Shechem after the treachery of Simeon and Levi in Shechem? I'm thinking Joseph did not know of Benjamin. So what are your thoughts, Charlie? Well, the Genesis account's generally chronological, so i got to start with the markers in that passage. You know, in chapter 35, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin when they were near Bethlehem. Now, that places Benjamin's birth right after the massacre at Shechem in chapter 34. Now, since the conflict between Joseph and his brothers begins following the death of Isaac, I think the journey from Shechem to Ephrat, Bethlehem, occurred before that event. So Jacob went from Shechem to Bethlehem, then down to Hebron, uh, straight down the way of the patriarchs. And uh, Jacob sent Joseph off from the Valley of Hebron, it says in chapter 37, in search of his brothers. So I suspect that uh, the search for the brothers occurred after the massacre at Shechem. Now, Joseph was 17 when the conflict began with his brothers. That's what it says in chapter 37. He's 30 when he enters the service of Pharaoh in Egypt. And that's followed by the seven good years at the start of the famine. And then the famine begins. And that's when Jacob sends his, his sons down to Egypt. Now, that means Joseph would have had to be about 38 years old when he next encountered his brothers. You, know, you have the 17 years at the beginning, the 13 in Egypt as a slave and prisoner, the seven in charge of gathering the supplies, and at least one year of famine. Now, we don't know how long after the birth of Joseph that Benjamin was born, but it may not have been too long after since Jacob, remember, asked Laban to let him go right after Joseph was born. And that's in the events in chapter 30. So I'm assuming Joseph and Benjamin were maybe only two to three years apart. Now, if Benjamin was three years younger than Joseph, that would make him about 35 years old when he traveled to Egypt. So could he have 12 children by that time? Well, I think uh, you suggested actually two good answers. Uh, his father and several of his brothers had taken multiple wives, and it's possible Benjamin did it as well. We also know that twins run in families, and Rebekah gave birth to Jacob and Esau, and Tamar gave birth to twins through Judah. So it's possible that some of Benjamin's children were twins. 
So if Benjamin married around 20, that's just a guess, then he could have had up to 15 years to build his family. And assuming the possibility of multiple wives and twins, I think having 12 children during that time is actually quite possible. Paul says, I need a good book on witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses. Any thoughts? Yeah, a good book, I think, is Ron Rhodes' book, Reasoning from the Scriptures with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I'd also encourage you to go to the following website for some other resources. It's Dare to Share. It's the number two in the middle. Dare, number two, share, dot org, then forward slash worldviews, forward slash Jehovah's hyphen witness. Now, they provide some great resources at that website for witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses as well. Charlie, I love this question and answer segment. You do a beautiful job, and people should know that as they write, uh, you do get back to them with a personal email pretty quick. I try to get back to them within 24 hours, if at all possible, and certainly as quickly as possible. And your question is welcome at our email address, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional is coming up. Thanks very much for joining us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Have you ever noticed that uh, healthy eating goes through phases? Uh, There are fads almost, if you will. This food or that fruit is the ultimate healing agent. You know, blueberries were big for a while. Pomegranates have had that cherished, vaulted position of being the end-all, be-all. But they have a biblical history that's worth hearing about, and we'll dig into that with Charlie Dyer's devotional coming up. Right now, this Holy Land experience. Let's listen. My name is Steve Clark. I teach in the undergraduate school here at Moody in the Department of World Missions. Uh, A few years ago, I was invited to go on, I believe it was the first Israel trip that Moody sponsored. Um, And when we got to the Holy Land, uh, I had that experience that probably everybody has uh, who goes there, every Christian, uh, just a sense of of disbelief that, wow, I'm actually here. And uh, all of these places that I've read about and could not begin to visualize uh, suddenly they're here before me, and uh, for me, it just made uh, the Bible spring to life. I've been uh, a Christian uh, many, many years, grew up in a, a preacher's home, and I've read the Bible a long time, but it was not until I'd gone to Israel that I was able to actually picture these events happening. Uh, David killing Goliath, he stand in the place where this probably happened, and the caves where David uh, hid from Saul. The places where Jesus was, the Sea of Galilee, incredible experience. All of those places were just names before, but now when I read the scripture, I think I've been there. I can visualize that. Uh, Just really an incredible experience for me. Do you like pomegranate juice? Well, whether you do or don't, pomegranates figure heavily into the Bible, as we'll hear now from Charlie's devotional. Charlie? In Deuteronomy 8, Moses described the promised land as a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. And today we're going to focus on the pomegranate by visiting the 600 survivors stranded on Pomegranate Peak. Not familiar with that story? Let me start by sharing some of the agricultural and historical background. I was in college before I tasted or even saw my first pomegranate. I was visiting my girlfriend, who's now my wife, During Christmas break, Kathy's mom had bought her a pomegranate as a special treat, and I watched Kathy peel it open. The fruit was the size of a very large orange, but with a burgundy-colored outer skin. 
Inside were hundreds of red seeds with a pleasant, though slightly tart, taste. The actual number of seeds in each pomegranate varies, but it's usually just over 600. One online statistic placed the average number at 613, and that's the traditional number of seeds assigned to the fruit in Judaism, which identifies the number of seeds with the number of commands in the Torah, 613. The Hebrew word for pomegranate is ramon, and that brings us to our story about the 600 survivors stranded on Pomegranate Peak. The story begins in the time of the judges, a time characterized by rebellion and self-indulgence. The particular account we want to explore today is found in the last three chapters of that book. The writer bookends the account with a simple explanation for why the nation was struggling. He begins, In those days Israel had no king, in chapter 19, verse 1. And he ends by writing, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit, in 21:25. Between these bookends, the writer shares the tragic story of a Levite with marital problems, a town with unbridled sexual promiscuity, and a civil war that nearly wiped out one of the 12 tribes of Israel. As tragic as the story is, it brings to mind a humorous story from one of my very first trips to Israel. I was a student on a study tour that included several field trips. In fact, we visited the city mentioned in this story once, and we drove past it two additional times within the space of just a few days. Each time we had a different teacher from the school, and each time the teacher used the opportunity to retell the story of Judges 19 to 21. The dismembering of the poor concubine became almost a daily occurrence on that trip, or at least that's how it seemed to us. But back to the story. The tribe of Benjamin's foolish desire to protect its rebellious relatives clashed with the other tribe's cries for vengeance. By the time the destructive civil war ended, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. The entire tribe of Benjamin was reduced to a mere 600 men. 98% of the tribe had been wiped out. The 600 men turned and fled into the desert to the Rock of Ramon, where they stayed four months. The Rock of Ramon is Pomegranate Peak. Most identify it with a large hill on the edge of the wilderness, three miles east of Bethel. Its name is still preserved in the name of the Arab village, Ramun, that sits on the site. Some have struggled with the details of the account. Pomegranate trees don't usually grow in the wilderness because they require more water than normally falls there. So how could a location in the desert be called the Rock of Ramon or Pomegranate Peak? Actually, the answer is not too difficult. The village of Ramun is right at the edge of the wilderness, just at the spot where the hill country begins sloping down into the Jordan Valley. Less than a mile to the east of the village, trees give way to wheat fields that very quickly give way to wilderness, uh, suitable only for flocks and herds and yet groves of trees surround that modern village. The Rock of Ramon, Pomegranate Peak, is high enough in elevation to support agriculture, and it's surrounded on all sides by steep valleys, offering good protection. The cultivation of pomegranates probably gave the site its name, and this pitiful remnant from Benjamin took refuge on this isolated outpost for four months, while the rest of the tribes looted and burned all the cities of Benjamin. If the seeds of the pomegranate symbolized all the commands of God, it's almost as if the rock of Ramon was a reminder of how far the people had strayed from those commands.
God had promised to bless Israel for obedience and to curse them for disobedience. And now one tribe had almost been completely wiped out for its disobedience. As we stand here on the windswept heights of Pomegranate Peak, what lessons can we learn from this tragic tale? I see two essential truths we can't ignore. First, this spot stands as a stark reminder that God expects obedience. God did not give his commands because he wanted to be some sort of cosmic killjoy, hoping to make everyone miserable. Rather, much of what God wrote in his word was intended to protect us from foolish actions that result in heartache and sadness. Chuck Swindoll made a profound observation in this regard when he wrote, Sowing what we reap is a principle as old as Scripture. Time and again we see examples of it in the Bible, as well as in life all around us. Theoretically, we know it's true. Experientially, we've witnessed it as well, but we tend to forget. Prisons exist, standing as stern evidence that crime does not pay. Drug rehabilitation centers and special clinics for alcoholics are both reminders that our bodies cannot be mistreated without severe consequences. Again, the reminder, we reap what we sow. Pomegranate Peak stands as a warning, as a reminder that when we choose to live life doing what is right in our own eyes, we'll eventually experience the consequences of our actions. Don't ever forget that reality. But there's a second lesson we can take from Pomegranate Peak, and it's a lesson about God's grace. As the book of Judges ends, the tribe of Benjamin is facing extinction. Using some rather creative means, the rest of the tribe secure brides for the 600 survivors. But what could such a small remnant ever hope to accomplish? The answer is found just two books away. Israel demanded a king, and God selected one to be their chosen leader. And he chose Saul, son of Kish, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. And though that Benjamite failed, another Saul from the tribe of Benjamin came along later, and he didn't fail. I'm referring, of course, to the Saul of the New Testament, whom we know better by his Roman name, Paul. The Apostle Paul reminded the Philippians of his family history, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. The first Saul might have failed, but this latter descendant from the tribe of Benjamin did not. At the end of his life, he was able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Isn't it encouraging to know that God didn't permanently set the tribe of Benjamin on the shelf because of its sin? And in the same way, he promises to use you if you're willing to be a wholehearted follower of him, willing to finish the race and keep the faith. That's a great word. Thank you, Charlie. Well, our time is drawing to a close, but I do want to share with you our email address so you can let us know how the broadcast is connecting with you, maybe impacting your own life, your thinking about Scripture in the, the Middle East. Email us today, if you would, at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Let me slow that down. Thelandandthebook at moody, M-O-O-D-Y dot E-D-U. I'm John Geiger on behalf of our team, which includes Dan Anderson and Charlie Dyer, and of course the management at this station. Thanks for listening, and do tell a friend about The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.